Today's episode of the Book of Basketball 2.0 on the Ringer Podcast Network. The first episode of season two is brought to you by a couple charity organizations that we love. World Central Kitchen. Right now we're facing an unprecedented emergency unlike anything this country has experienced beyond the health impacts of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Our economy is ground to a halt. The reality is stark, but simple. Millions of Americans are out of work and struggling to put food on the table for their families, but that doesn't mean this moment is not without hope. World Central Kitchen has seen what's possible. They've fought on the front lines of Japan and California deploying systems to deliver meals to quarantine cruise ship passengers. Their relief team is now serving nearly 100,000 meals every day across the country. They need you together. Hashtag Chefs for America can make sure nobody is left behind. They're doing something really great here in Los Angeles, which I have donated $100,000 to. They're feeding the front line fighting COVID-19 in Los Angeles. You could do that too. Right now, um, they almost 450 employees, hospital workers and ICU and ER units and six hospitals in the Los Angeles area they're taking care of all those people with lunch and dinner for as long as they have the funds to do it. And even better, that money is going to restaurants here in Los Angeles. So please go check that out. You can find all of it on the WCK.org website. And since we're there, if you're, if you're thinking about feeding people, don't forget to go to feedingamerica.org as well. You can find over 200 food banks tied to different cities and towns across America. I donated to the Greater Boston Food Bank a couple weeks ago. Um, go check it out. Go help some people. Do what you can. These are important times. Um, if you have the means, do what you can for the people out there. Okay. We're also brought to you by the ringer.com and the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're still trying to crank out a bunch of content, including this week on the ringer.com the greatest TV characters of the 21st century. We did a whole bracket. So you can check that out as well as all the pods we're doing. This idea that you're about to hear started because Ryan Russell and I wanted to redraft the 2000 draft, which is the worst draft of all time. We'd been talking about doing it for a while. We decided to get a little more ambitious. We redrafted the 1996 draft first, an iconic NBA draft, either the first or second greatest draft of all time. That's what you're about to hear. We did this on my podcast, but going forward on this feed for season two, a season two, we never even knew we were going to do until the uh, coronavirus thing hit the point where it's like, well, what else are we going to do? I'm quarantined. We might as well redraft every draft. So we're starting with 1996. This week on the Book of Basketball pod, you will hear 97, 98, and 99 is all coming this week, and then we'll be moving to two week after that. So this is the first one we did. We did me, Ryan Rosillo, the 1996 draft, the redraft, redraft a Palooza here on Book of Basketball 2.0. But first, tic tac and melatonin. Book of basketball, yeah. It's a book of basketball, yeah. 
basketball. All right, Sundays with Ryan Rossillo. You know, I was going to save this part of the pod until later and do a bunch of current event stuff first, but I'm the kind of guy, if I have a present, I just want to give it to somebody. Like, it was the same thing. When I got engaged, I was supposed to get engaged with my wife at dinner. I had the ring the night before. We're in my basement, and I end up just kind of just saying, fuck it, and I gave her the ring the night before I was supposed to. I... I'm a guy who likes to hand out presents. This is a present. We are redrafting every single NBA draft from 96 on, starting today on this podcast. And then we're going through, we're going to run all of them on Book of Basketball, but one of them is going to be on Rosillo's this week. We have already banked 97, 98, 99. Rosillo was on a couple of them. And uh, and now we're doing this one. And uh, I, I I didn't have to twist your arm to do this. I'll just no. say that. This is this is one of my favorite ones. I mean, all the different storylines of this, though. But you know how it's connected to you know Larry Brown coming to Philly the year after this, Cal being with New Jersey, and the whole Kobe storyline, Patino and the the back and forth of Larry Brown and that whole story, and then Patino comes in the next year, and all the money that those guys were pulling down at the time was like astronomical. Then Patino's contract was crazy, but all of that stuff is connected. And when you go through this, you know Iverson was clearly the number one guy, but there's when we redraft this, redraft this for real. Like, I wanted to go first because look, the number one is very obvious with Kobe, but there's a real question of of what, like, how far down should Iverson go? Like, right? How far behind some of these other guys, or does he automatically go number two? Because some people listening to this were like, look, Kobe one, Iverson two, and then the rest of the conversation. I'm not sure that that's the case, and the fact that it felt like the GMs. We're all like on Adderall that night and couldn't stop calling each other and making trades because you sent me that text. This this trade is absurd how loaded it is. And then some of the guys you even forget where they're in it. So it wasn't just this headliners. There's some real depth in this one, too, that holds up historically. Yeah. So we picked 96. It's it's one of the two iconic drafts ever, along with the 1984 draft. It's either the best draft ever or the second best draft ever, uh, depending on, you know, what you favor. But it's also a fascinating point with basketball because you have, it's still college basketball. It still feels like college basketball. You still have guys staying for two, three, even four years sometimes. You still have the big coaches. The audience is still there. People still love it. And the product's really good. But you can feel things starting to shift. And it shifts the year before when KG goes right from high school to the NBA. And in this draft specifically, you have Kobe's a high schooler. Nobody has a feel for what that means, where he should go. He's going to all these workouts. He's knocking people's socks off. And yet there's a real hesitation. It's not much different than KG the year before where he falls to five. And even though people are like, well, talent-wise, this guy's probably the best guy. Joe Smith goes four picks ahead of him. Um, but you, so you have that. The one-and-done stuff is really starting at this point. Antoine wins the title at Kentucky and just comes out. He's... He's, he's just done. That's it. He's, he's ready to go to the NBA. He's 19 years old, ends up going sixth in this draft. But you see, these worlds are colliding. College basketball is really about to change. We don't fully understand that yet. We still have a lot of history with a lot of these guys. And within probably four years, college basketball just kind of starts to turn into something else. It's not the same kind of talent pool. It all starts with this draft. What else do you remember about 96, just from a big picture standpoint? Okay, so the KG stuff the year before is, is probably one of my favorite things in that we do this 
we do this deal where it happens a lot in college sports, but I think it's overall just in this in this way we navigate through things. When things are new, when things are different, and it's not the norm, we're like, well, wait a minute, you know, what are they doing? Like, I don't really like this. Um, I remember in the '80s, if a kid left after a sophomore year, you're like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, who's he think he, he is? And 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 all of this stuff, like, oh, he might not be ready. And it's like it's not you're not drafting to be ready. You're drafting for what somebody could be. And this is, as you said, it's part of that transition. The media, and it's not just media, sports fans, and sometimes selfishly college sports fans, th- this is an, a, just a ridiculous um, pattern, but people seem to care about other people's education levels way more than they should, especially when they're people you're never going to meet. So when yeah. KG was going to jump straight from high school, and really we decades removed from guys doing it before, it's like, who does this guy think he is? One of my favorite lines that I've repeated a million times was Mad Dog, Chris Russo, doing radio, and I would listen religiously to he and Mike and the dog, and he's like, well, maybe KG should just play the home games and not go on road games, and you're like, wait a minute, but this was like, he was challenging things. So, But at that time, it was like, well, at least KG's like a seven-footer, and he's a big man, because if we've ever had it happen before, you know, Moses Malone, some others, it was going to be a big man that would do it. And for Kobe to come into that year's draft in 96 and be a perimeter player, it was immediately met with resistance because we didn't have access to any of these legendary workouts. The only people that really knew how good he was were either himself, his family, or the people that got him these workouts. And yet he still almost goes outside of the lottery because it was just hard to think. Right, right. And honestly, the way he got traded, we'll go through all that kind of stuff. It was all kind of navigated with agents. I also think, too, that's important. Agents at this time, I feel like are far more powerful with positioning who goes where in the draft and what happens and scaring teams off. I think the agents in the 90s had more power when it came to the draft than they do today. And there's real resistance to all of this at the time. And that's the hardest thing to explain. I think if you watched a Fab Five documentary that we did for, uh, it was not really a 30 for 30. It was for ESPN. It was that weird stretch when we were making 30 for 30s, then we're calling them. I still count as a 30 for 30. I watched it with my son recently because my son just knows Jalen from the guy who's come over to my house and the guy who's my friend. And he was like, was Jalen a, nice. a good basketball player? I'm like, yeah, Jalen was like an icon. So we watched that Fab Five thing. And you can really feel it in that. And I highly recommend that as a rewatch for people where, you know, five freshmen starting was inconceivable. Um, Freshmen carrying themselves the way they did. There was like this real sense with the old school college basketball community that they were losing control of this thing where it's like the NCAA, college basketball, college football, all of it, we're in control. These kids are playing for us. And starting with that Fab Five, things start to flip and the whole infrastructure is now in danger. And it's all leading to this 95 and then especially the 96 draft where it's like, all right, now these kids are going to use you just like you're using them. They're going to leave after a year. They might not even go to college anymore. When we, when I was growing up, it was Moses Malone and Bill Willoughby. You always heard those two, the guys in the mid-70s. Moses went straight to the ABA out of high school. Uh, Bill Willoughby the next year went to the NBA right out of high school never really made it. And then Dawkins ends up on the Sixers and had a pretty good career. And then it just gets shut down uh, for until KG. And there was still that weird attitude that you just mentioned and tapped into of people being really dismissive and untrustworthy of talented guys coming in too young. Like we were protecting them. I'm not sure what we were protecting them from other than just 
making more money right away, right? You think about Patrick Ewing, he should have come into the NBA after one year at Georgetown. He made, he lost three NBA seasons because he's played he played four years at Georgetown. Was it worth it? I don't know. Well, it was also the norm. You're right, but John Thompson's the type of guy that like had so much power back then that Patrick Ewing wasn't going to leave early. No, you know, I mean Walter Berry left early, and I remember being like, "Oh, it's, you know, okay, whatever, he's ready to go." And Walter Berry's one of the guys at St. John's who I I loved and thought, "Okay, well, he's going to be a star," and it didn't really work out. And then that would always happen because then I started to become like, "Hey, all of these guys should bounce." The sooner you can get into the league and and prevent them from finding out that you can't play, go ahead and do it. Um, and you'd be surprised, like you would think most GMs would have wanted there to be players in college longer to have more of a sample to watch them. But over the years, most of the guys that I had talked to said, you know, you just should be able to come right out of high school. would rather get him in here. And as far as like getting into trouble and that kind of stuff, I think there's kind of like three categories of people. All right. There are kids that have it figured out and understand and, and are far more mature. And I think sometimes when you're a kid in high school, that's going through that kind of spotlight, like LeBron James was already mature beyond his years because he had been in the spotlight for such a long time that he kind of understood what was being asked of him. And if you think about like the blueprint for wanting to just nail it, at least to how you're accepted socially, it's LeBron James. KG was one of those guys in a way too, not as out front of the face of a franchise, but KG just kind of knew how to, to make it work. Like he wasn't going to be a bad kid where yeah. other people like the other category is, is kids that are just bad kids. And I don't care if you're going to the pros out of high school or after one year of college, you probably didn't get into trouble because you left for the pros too early. You probably got into trouble because you were going to get into trouble no matter where you were. And then I think there's the kids that do something wrong, adjust, and then never make that mistake again. So I, I there, there was all these things always put on it. And I think we do this all the time, like in general stuff, like eBay. I remember when eBay was first announced and guys are like, wait, what? You're going to put something up for sale and then people you don't know are just going to bid on it and you're going to trust that they're going to pay for it? Well, that's fucking stupid. And it works. Like, think about ride shares. Wait, so my my daughter is going to, some guy, some asshole is going to drive over some stranger in his Prius. He's going to pick my daughter up and he's going to drive her to the mall. Well, that's crazy. That's not going to happen. And then it ends up being this unbelievable, successful company that people try to emulate. So I think when it comes to sports, like even if you did it for the NFL and said, well, what if kids just came straight out of high school? Yes, I think the first thing is you worry about the physical development of some of these guys. But is there any version of it where if guys came out of college football earlier that we would go, hey, you know what wasn't a big deal is having a quarterback leave after his freshman year and get some pro coaching and become a pro a lot earlier than another two years playing at the college level. And that's and where this started these two years. For running backs, that would have been great too. So when I was a kid, the 1980 Celtics, Bird's first season, they, lo they lose to Philly in five. But Red Arback had made this trade and they had the number one pick because he had traded Bob McAdoo and, and had this future number one. It becomes the number one pick in the whole draft. And they know this. Sampson has just finished his, his freshman year at Virginia. And Sampson is the lost uh, sure thing from the 80s and 90s. Basically, you're talking Shaq, Ewing, David Robinson, uh, Hakeem. Well, Hakeem, yeah. Hakeem, then, I mean, Hakeem, Hakeem was, I remember and, the first tanking article I ever read, I was in elementary school, and I was like, what are the Rockets doing? Like, right. I'm serious. It was crazy. And I was in sixth grade. So Samson was like the fifth of the sure things from the 80s and 90s. And Red Arback wants him to come out for the draft. And he's kind of lobbying for it. And people are getting mad at Red Arback. And, and you know, there's this, people come back at him going, well, what's, what's nothing's more important than an education? And, and Red gets in trouble. He goes, 
what's the kid going to become a doctor? Like he's an NBA player. He should come out right now. <laughs> he's seven and four. He's, and he's trying to, you know, and it's a really good what if, because if he comes out, Samson was just unbelievable. His knees started going on him in the, in the mid eighties. But if you think about it, he spends three more years in Virginia and then ends up on Houston. That's a lost year. Hakeem shows up by the time he, you know, it's five years later before he's on a decent team. He could have gone on that Celtics team with all that stuff. So anyway, we go through the eighties and basically to the KG moment. And that's when that part starts to flip. The other thing was Iverson was already really polarizing heading into that draft because he had gone to jail for the bowling alley thing. We did a 30 for 30 on that whole thing too. It was really messed up. He got in. It was so messed up that he ended up getting as much trouble as he did for that it, specific incident. That's right. what I mean. He, right. he, he got completely railroaded and then he got eventually got pardoned. He goes out, ends up ending up at Georgetown and he's super fun to watch that one year in the big East back when the big East was still a thing. And at some point, it becomes the Allen Iverson draft and he's clearly going to go first. They don't win the title with him at Georgetown, but still really fun. And it's a loaded draft. And you mentioned all these, all these dumb trades that end up affecting the draft in all these different ways. I can't emphasize this strongly enough. If you don't think NBA teams knew what they were doing in 2019 and 2020, and if you think we had some bad GMs and dumb decisions, let me take you back to the mid nineties. Cause it was, uh, of apocalypse of bad decision-making and a lot of them all crest in that draft. What was your favorite trade of all the trades I mailed you? Cause I had forgotten ML Carr actually won a trade with, uh, <laughs> ML Carr heading into that 96 draft. I think that I think, Oh yeah, he did it the week before he traded Eric Montross and the ninth pick to the Mavericks for the number six pick and a future pick, which became the six pick in the following year's draft, which could have been Tracy McGrady if they had done the right thing. But uh, that enabled him to move into number six and take Antoine. I think if they had stayed at number nine, I actually do think they would have taken Kobe. I know that's a, you know, Wait, crazy what? ass. Based on what? I do. Because he worked out for the Celtics and like they loved him. But they weren't going to take him at six. But I think he, there's a picture of him online with him in the Celtics t-shirt. And they made yeah, a big deal after that. about how much, how how impressed they were by him. Six was too early. Nine to 14 was kind of the Kobe range for this draft, right? I think anything earlier than that would have seemed obscene. But apparently the Nets were going to take him too. And they, 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 Calipari, I think, overruled whoever else or vice versa. I can't remember the story. Okay, well, a couple things. Um, Iver you know, Iverson was there two years, right? Because it was that, yep. that showdown with, with Ray. I look through this and go, my man Lorenzen Wright there, seven to the Clippers. Um, Kittles ends up going eight. So I, that's the thing I spent the most time on today, going back over what Cal said. You and I both know this. There is no survival instinct stronger than the GM years removed from the decision that didn't go his way. And Cal, what happens a lot of times is if somebody miss, misses on somebody or trade, they'll tell you how badly they wanted them after the fact. Yeah. And then they blame everybody else for it. Um, let's let's take Cal at his word here. So <laughs> I'm not sure we should, but let's <laughs> let's do it as a as a thought exercise. Okay. So they've got the eighth pick. They've worked Kobe out, I believe, three times, fairly Dickinson. And yeah. Calipari's losing his mind. And John Nash, who was um, I, I, this is one of the 
biggest dickhead moves I've ever done on a live show. But I was so upset when the Sixers traded Moses Malone and the number one pick that was going to be Brad Doherty because I couldn't wait to see Barkley, Moses Malone, and Brad Doherty. Well, Barkley um, was your guy. And Barkley was my guy. So I was like, that's insane. Like, Barkley's going to play small forward because he could have. And instead, they traded Moses and Terry Catledge, I believe, for Jeff Ruland and Cliff Robinson, the one from the Harlem Globetrotters. And then they traded Awful. the pick for uh, Hinson, yeah. right? Yep. They so, traded the Doherty pick for Hinson, yeah. Doherty pick for Hinson. Now, I'd heard years later, years, years removed, that they wanted to get Moses out of Philadelphia. Um, but that's what they ended up with. They ended up with two bigs from the Bullets and Roy Hinson, who was always hurt all the time. And so John Nash was the front office guy at that time. Now, Nash ended up being the GM of the Trailblazers when they did the uh, Martell Webster pick when they moved down, you know, it was the Chris Paul, Darren Williams draft, Deron Williams. Um, and I was on a Philadelphia Comcast show where I was in Boston and Nash was on the panel back in Philly. And I was like, well, you know, whatever they were talking about, I was like, it's not as bad as trading Moses in the number one pick for Henson and some bullets. And everybody else, on the panel was like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so, I later apologized to John, and he was actually really good to me um, because later on, like I said, he was in the league. But the reason I bring that up is that Nash was the one going to Cal saying, we have to take him. And Cal's like, I want to take him. Cal had dinner with Kobe's parents the night before the draft. Okay. And Joe Bryant saying, rookie of the year, all-star second season. And Cal's like, here I'm thinking his father's delusional. And at the same time, like he was totally right about him. And then Arn Tellum calls up and says, if you take Kobe at eight, He's going to play in Italy. You just took this gig. You're fucked. And Cal was like, look, I can't do this in my own building. I can't screw this one up. And then David Falk, who had all sorts of juice back in the 90s, you know that as well as anybody, called and just kept hammering on the Kerry Kittles thing, the Kerry Kittles thing. And so the next day, they have lunch. Calipari tells Nash, I'm not taking Kobe. I'm afraid he's going to go. I can't get this wrong. You know, Arn is on my case about Kittles. And Joe Taub who was the owner of the Nets at the time, went to those two guys and said, I want John Wallace instead out of Syracuse. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, look, Cal clearly was enamored with him, but I always wonder when we start talking about stuff that happened 20, 25 years ago when it's a bad decision, like how often people will make excuses for something that went bad. It's pretty much human nature. Well, I remember the famous Celtics draft when they took Joe Johnson, Kedrick Brown, and Joe Forte, 21. And I already know what you're going to say here. Well, they made a big point of being like, you know, that was Red's pick. Red really loved him. I just, Red was like in his mid-70s at that point. He was, you know, the old guy. He, they were, he was in the war room out of basically respect and that's it. Wasn't like he was burned in the game film at night. And... I just have always refused to believe that Red was in control of one of the three first round picks at that stage of his life. You know, the and way it was told to me, it was like he had a he had a gun on everyone in the room. Oh yeah, was well, like, you're taking once, Forte because of the relationship with the high school coach. Once Forte didn't pan out, that's exactly what happened. So here is the draft, just for the people listening who don't remember this sequence. Philly is first; they take Iverson. Toronto is second; they take Marcus Camby. Vancouver takes Sharif Abdur-Rahim, who um, was a very, very highly regarded prospect and was a huge high school kid. And that was actually a pick that made sense. Stefan Marbury goes fourth to Milwaukee. Ray Allen goes fifth to Minnesota. They end up flipping picks. Antoine Walker goes sixth to Boston. And I remember at the time, didn't have a lot going on. Uh, 
I think that was the summer I started bartending. Really being convinced this was a six-person draft. So when ML, who was a moron, the uh, and the M standing for moron when he was a GM, when he trades up into the top six, it was like, this is great. This is a six-player draft. It's impossible to move into the top six when it's a six-player draft, but they pulled it off. Clippers are seven, Lorenzen right. The Nets are eight. They take Kerry Kittles, who's better than people remember. But man, that Kobe thing is tough. He just Dal- hurt, man. I mean, Kittles' thing was injuries more than anything else, right. really. Dallas uh, is nine with Samaki Walker. Indiana takes Eric Dampier, 10. And then we have an incredible combo here. Golden State, 11. Cleveland, 12. Todd Fuller, Vitaly Potapico. And then the next five picks, Charlotte, Kobe Bryant, Sacramento, Paige Stoyakovic, Phoenix, Steve Nash, Charlotte, Tony Delk, Portland, Jermaine O'Neal. And as we, as you're going to see when we redo this, this draft, um, and I, I did in 2014, I wrote a whole piece. I redrafted every draft for 20 years for Grantland with the point being, um, this is a crapshoot. Why do we throw ourselves into these drafts so much? There is no rhyme or reason to any of this. This is probably the all-time example uh, where you have a couple of blue chippers that we knew were going to be good and then some guys out of nowhere that become transcendent Hall of Famers. Steve Nash, 15th pick. Santa Clara. Uh, Do you remember where you were when you, when you saw Nash get the hat and come across the stage? Do you remember where you were in your reaction? Because I do. I just remember instinctively rooting for him for some reason because it was like, oh, there's a white Canadian point guard who just went 50. I knew nothing. There was The other thing in 96 was we had no YouTube. We no. had no big boards. There was no, not even the person, two people before Chad Ford. There was really nothing. You just had talk radio <laughs> and you had people going, I, I really like uh, Antoine Walker. And I thought he was really good in the March Madness. And that was like our college basketball opinions back then. We just didn't yeah, that's know. it. I mean, you, you, the internet wasn't, and I, I feel like we repeat ourselves on this, you know, whenever that comes up, but it just, unless you watch a Santa Clara game live, you, you didn't know what the hell was going on. So at first you're like, who's the intern? You know, what's going on here with Nash? Well, we remember how much we would rely on the little clips after the guy got picked. They would show. Right. And I remember 20 seconds of highlights. I I, I saw his clips, but like, you know, the NFL draft is always hilarious to me because, you know, going to that live maybe once and God bless you if you do. And maybe if it's just say you and your boys guys week or weekend or whatever it is. and, And you, but you have to admit, even today, 90% of the guys being announced, you haven't watched one fucking snap of, okay? And so what you do is you talk yourself into, because of an article you read or a clip that you see, some defensive lineman or some guard, and really all you want is just fantasy guys so you can have fantasy guys from your favorite football team. But now we're so updated. Like I think it's so funny that the NFL draft is still kind of this outdated thing because most guys aren't going to sit there and start watching guard film going, eh, there could be a couple guards of, available 20. But that's what we were doing. We were blind in 1996. And then I was I was back home that summer. I was at a buddy's house. I was like, look, I don't care what the plan is tonight. Like, I'm watching the draft, and then I'll meet up with you guys after. And they were like, you're seriously going to watch this whole? I was like, of course I'm going to watch this whole thing. And uh, his clips, when they fired him up, I'm like, whoa, like, who's this guy? Where's he been hiding? But it still seemed 
you know, like who, is Steve Nash really going to be that good? It just it was such an unknown. And to see his clips, it was just, you know, I was in college still. And I just went, wow, like, I wish I had seen this guy play. I love the draft my entire life. I remember when they did not televise the draft. And what year you had, was that? So I remember the last, there's, there, I'm going to say early 80s. I think they started televising it somewhere in the early 80s. But I remember one year the Celtics had a couple second round picks. One of them was Tracy Jackson they took from Notre Dame. But I remember listening to that draft on the radio because it wasn't on TV. And it's one of the local sports stations or radio stations was wow. just just running it. And it was like, uh, with the 31st pick, the Celtics take Tracy Jackson. <laughs> and then at some point, at some point they realized they should start televising it. And it, in general, they real they realized what they had stumbled into around the Samson Hakeem Ewing era. When, so before the Ewing thing, that was when they added the lottery. They, they at some point realized that there was a televised spectacle that should be happening, which really wasn't much different than football. I don't think football was showing the drafts either until 82, 83. And that's cable is the reason we started having televised drafts. But I loved it immediately. I used to watch them, used to go over to my dad's house. Then eventually when I started writing, I would do draft diaries for my old website. But even before that, we would we'd be talking about the draft for days. And the reality was there was no information. And you were talking out of your ass 90% of the time with all these guys. Now we're only talking out of our ass 50% of the time. I remember going back and, and researching some of that stuff. And that was a, that was a 10 round draft. Like they would do 10 rounds and red Arback would take like whoever went to Holy cross. He would take right. his plumber's cousin. And I remember like, I'll, years later, after you realize this, cause as a kid, uh, I don't know how often this ever happened to you. It happened to me very rarely, but you would go, oh, you know, because my father was, you know, a carpenter or builder or whatever, and we would go and work on some of these people's houses. And then I remember this one place we were doing a deck and the guy was probably on the vineyard summer house and like, well, you know, uh, Tom here was actually drafted by the Celtics. And at that point, like as a little kid, you go, oh my God, you know, like <laughs> what's Larry Bird like? Are you a millionaire? And all these different <laughs> right. things, right? And then as I got a little older, I was like, yeah, but what round though? Did you like, did you play at Merrimack or something? And you were just like a local 10th rounder and never played. And the guy was like, yeah, that's exactly, exactly what I was. Yeah. That was, <laughs> so, so like, I, just, I just, I ruined like, Hey, he was drafted by the Celtics. I'm like, yeah, but like the fake pick. Cause you were a local kid. Like don't tell strangers that they used to do the last seven rounds. They would just take kids from Brandeis, Holy Cross. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. Boston university. Yeah. That was the move. Yeah, the 10 19 rounds. Think about that. 223 kids were drafted in a 23-team league in 1981. So I listened to the 1981 draft on the radio. The Celtics had the 23rd pick of the first round. They took Charles Bradley, who could dunk, and that was it. Second round. Wyoming. Tracy Wyoming. Jackson, 25th, another miss. And then... Are we going to start doing third or fourth round misses from 81? No, then Danny Age, 31st. Oh, there we go. And I and I remember on the radio, they were like, yeah, he might play baseball, but you know, Reds had some success. John Havlicek almost played football. And it, it was like one of those. Nobody knew anything. They didn't know what was going on. Wait a minute. Did on. they reference the other guy who played pitch for the Braves? Who was Oh, this, Gene uh, Conley. That Gene, was another Gene one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. he took Conley 400 years ago. Well, you had in the 80s, you would just have Red just making these trades where he knows Kevin McHale is going to be better than Joe Barry Carroll and trades back two picks, but then picks up the number 13th pick as well. 
Yeah. He's like, ah, we'll give you number one. And, and they're like, cool, we'll have the number. And they, and people are just getting pillaged by the nineties. Um, people are still getting pillaged, but this, I'm going to read all the trades for the, for the listeners. Cause there's right. some classics in here. So draft night bucks trade the rights to Stefan Marbury to the Timberwolves for Ray Allen and a future first round pick. I would say the Bucks won that one. I mentioned the Mavs Celtics trade. Here's another one. This is one where everybody who loved college basketball knew Jalen Rose was going to have a moment in the NBA. There was just, he was getting buried in the nuggets. I never gave up. He was just too interesting of an offensive player and always was better in big games. And it was just hard to believe he wasn't going to make it. The Pacers trade, the number 23rd pick, along with Mark Jackson and a getting old Ricky Pierce to the Nuggets for the 10th pick and Jalen Rose and Reggie Williams, who was a former top five lottery pick. So that was a steal. Uh, Is that Georgetown Reggie Williams? Yeah. Yeah. So then you have this other trade where you have uh, two summers ago, the Magic trade, the no, the, a future draft pick, and Scott Skiles to the Bullets for the 42nd pick. So they're trying to clear cap space for Horace Grant. So the Wizards somehow end up with the 11th pick, but not for long because they traded that with uh, two other first-rounders and Tom Gugliotta for Chris Weber in 1994. So you have all that in there. I met Gugliotta. He's a nice guy. And then you have, they also traded the number 12 pick for a fairly washed up Mark Price that year too. So the Bullets went from having the 12th to 13th pick to no picks. And then you have a couple other ones. The Heat traded the 16th pick in the Alonzo Mourning trade when they traded uh, when they traded for Alonzo Mourning. The Pistons traded the number 18th pick with Dennis Rodman for the 26th pick in Sean Elliott in 1993. So that one moved. And then... Uh, we have a Kevin Willis and the 19th pick for Steve Smith and Grant Long trade from two years earlier. But then my favorite one, the Heat in September 95 sent the 19th pick and $1 million to the Knicks for the right to hire Pat Riley. I would that was say a that weird... was a great trade. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have do the right you guy. Do that again, right? The Riley Knicks thing was crazy. That's its own podcast. Contentious. Yeah. And, the, and then New York fans were really, really hurt and angry. Yeah. So Rat um, Riley signs everywhere. Is it rhymes? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to redraft, but wanted to mention a couple of things. I ranked, I did this in the Grant Uncom. I'm just going to keep it here. A five-star system for how good the player was. So super duper star. You have to be like basically a Hall of Fame pyramid pantheon guy. That's five stars. All-timers, four stars. Franchise guys, three star. All-stars, two stars. Quality starters, one star. So this draft had a super-duper star, Kobe Bryant, five stars. It had two four-star guys, Nash and Iverson. It had a three-star guy who's almost like a three-and-a-half star, Ray Allen. Two two-star guys, Jermaine O'Neal and Ben Wallace. And then four one-star guys, Dojakovic, Canby, Marbury, and Walker, which means they were, you know, starter, borderline all-stars. And then Zadrudis Elgaskis, Sharif Abdur-Rahim, and Kerry Kittles, who were all, like, really serviceable starters. So 13 guys who not only uh, made valuable contributions, but got paid 
and you mentioned this earlier, this draft class made so much money. It was, <laughs> it's probably the biggest windfall of any draft class up to that point, right? I mean, what Kobe did, like he was making 24, 25 when the second highest paid player was making 18 or 19. So Kobe got hooked up in this deal. Jermaine O'Neal made a ton of money here. Camby still played 17 years. Nash played 18. Ray played 18. You know, Ray yeah. had like two max deals, I think, in there. So, yeah, I mean, Nash, who did incredibly well for himself, wasn't one of the top five highest paid guys in this class. I added up the math. Kobe Iverson, Jermaine O'Neal, and Ray Allen made more than $825 million combined just playing basketball, just in salaries. They, Wait, they say hit that it. again. Kobe Iverson, O'Neal, and Ray Allen, just those four guys made eight, over $825 million combined. <laughs> and this was the era when, in 99, when they had the lockout, all of a sudden, anybody who was three years into the league could just redo their contract and sign some six-year giant deal. Um, you had Marbury, Abdurrahim, and Anton Walker all sign max deals. Camby, Ogaskis, and Nash, Nash, multiple big money deals. Kittles made over $55 million, which I didn't realize. So uh, just money all over the place that um, that it really hasn't been topped. Um, the other thing I did here was I, I created a Simmons crapshoot rating called the Scrap to see just how much of a crapshoot each draft would be. So we're going to be using that going forward. This was a 10 out of 10, just for like when you look back and you just go, wow, what the fuck happened in that draft? This is a 10 out of 10. I think we're going to do the 2000 draft together in a couple drafts, which I think both of us are excited about. That's like a minus 10 out of 10. It's like a, what the fuck happened? And also why <laughs> you're confused the entire time. Uh, do you want the first pick or the second pick? I want the second pick. All right, we'll do that. Let's take a break. Then we're going to redraft the 96 draft. Okay. Um, couple other subplots just to put people kind of in the headspace of where some of these teams were in 90 in 96. So you had Philly who had just traded Barkley four years before and the trade's catastrophic and they bought him out. They have a chance to rally the following year. They take Sean Bradley, with the second pick. How did you feel about that in uh, 94? Where, what was your Sean Bradley take? Not strong. It just, you know, just, it didn't even make sense at the time. Like it was no. one of those, it was a little Ola candy ish You know, it was like, oh, so you guys are going to do that? It reminded me of uh, the Hashim Thabit draft in 2009, where there were all those awesome guys in that draft and Memphis had the second pick. And it was like, they, they, they're serious. They're going to take the beat. And all of us, all of us were like, Really? You're not really going to do that, right? That's not really going to be the move, right? And then they actually did it. That was the Sean Bradley thing. Do you remember yeah. who was one and three in that draft? Um, In 92? It was whatever the Sean Bradley year was. What was that, 93? or no? I thought that was 94. You probably know it better than I do. Let me uh, go back. I thought it was... I wasn't wasn't doing it, diaries then. I wasn't um, either. Because I remember Glenn Robinson. I remember that contract dispute and how... Yeah, it was Weber and then Penny and then Mashburn. Right. And then Isaiah Ryder, who was one of the greatest interviews ever. Do you remember that NBC, NBA on NBC on Sunday? I think it was 96, 97 season. 
And he sat down and did a one-on-one with somebody. And he was like, yo, I kill. And then fill in the blank. I was like, do you, why do you think you're better than he's like, oh, and I'm just like going to pick a name here and be like, I kill, you know, Glenn Rice. <laughs> and it's not, it wasn't Glenn Rice, but it was like the most vicious I've ever seen a player like in a one-on-one where it's like normally like, hey, we, you know, today's game, Isaiah Ryder, their wing, the JR Ryder later on. He's like, no. Uh, yeah, Weber one, Bradley two. I think that he seemed to beat things perfect because he's not the number one. And you always, you always can tell, like, I finally figured this out later on. But when you ask a school about their own guy and they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> that's what kind of stuff I was getting from UConn about the beat. I was like, what do you guys think about the beat? They're like, well, you know, if he does this, 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 and then 20 things later, you're like, oh, you guys think he sucks. All right. Got it. That was one of those where you just had to watch him run in person for five seconds. Be like, oh, you're going to run that way? There's no way. It's not happening. You're running yeah. like you're wearing concrete sneakers. This wasn't happening. So Philly, my point, they really needed the Iverson thing because they have the combo of the trading Barkley and then the Sean Bradley thing, and they are just rock bottom. Toronto, new franchise, new blood, just looking for anybody good. Isaiah's still running them at that point. Vancouver expansion team, they're just happy to be there. They'll take anybody good. The Minnesota-Milwaukee thing was interesting. So Milwaukee... Um, gets the better player. My, it, I felt that way at the time. I, I think we no all kidding. thought Ray Allen. Yeah, I just, I just thought Ray Allen was. I just loved him. Uh, I just thought he was a sure thing. I not not at the same level of how I felt about KD or somebody like that. But very rarely in college, where you just see somebody in college, you're like that. I would bet my whole life that that guy's going to be good at professional basketball. Ray Allen was so clearly going to be really good. Uh, the Marbury thing, he had the higher upside. But the the family stuff was even worrisome back then. He he had had a really hard life, and um, I they were I thought there were some subtle red flags with him. Uh, as much fun as he was to watch at Georgia Tech, but they wanted to put him with KG and try to do the whole Stockton Malone thing. Then you have the Celts at six, delighted to get Antoine Walker, and then after that, um, and the Celts are also coming off the. Len Bias, Reggie Lewis combo and just the fall of the Boston Garden. This is the first real sign of hope that they've had in a while. And then you go through the rest of them. The, the Nets one is probably the most interesting one at eight, but we talked about the reasons for that, where they're doing this rebirth thing with Calipari. And, you know, the Nets had, they had lost Draz and Petrovic. They'd had a nice little run there where there was a little something with Derek Coleman, Kenny Anderson and Draz. And, and then all those guys are gone in two years. And that's a complete reboot for them too. So there's a, this is a really kind of rough time for the league because you had the 96 bulls going 72 and 10. Part of the reason they went 72 and 10 was because there's so many bad teams because the league had overexpanded. The quality of play was not that good. They're moving the three pointer line around. They can't decide where that should be. It's way too physical. Uh, it just, this wasn't like a great time for basketball. They needed this draft is my point. Yeah, and then the rest of the guys, Dampier, as you mentioned, 10 after Smocky Walker, Todd Fuller, Vitali, and then Kobe, Peja, and then Nash is, is just outside of it. I even sneaky like Tony Delk a little bit, um, who played I 10 years in the league. So do you want to go first then? Yeah, I'll go first. First pick. Um, the way we decided to do this, there's a little bit of a, just a little bit of a time machine element 
like, do we draft for who we thought the team should have taken at the time, or do we just take the best player and do it in that order? I think we should just go in the order of here's who we think were the best players going down descending order, and then we could kind of talk. It's about a lot like, they- just in as a side, you know, it's a lot like the rewatchables for me, where I still don't understand what we're doing. But is my like third what Apex one. Is. Yeah, yeah, like third one, third redraft for me. I still don't know really what your rules are for this, even though it's your vision and, and some of these different <laughs> rankings. I look at this as, you know, if you were starting franchises, who would you go with? Not that's how I look hey, at it too. Did they have did they have good guard depth in nineteen ninety six? I on agree. A different team. All right, so I'll take Kobe first because he's one of the ten best players of all time, and. You know, I I didn't even really full. There's no way he would have gone first. It would have been absurd, impossible, et cetera. But it is funny that Philly had the first pick in this draft, and and he was playing there, and he was in their backyard. But you know, uh, that I wonder, was that wasn't going to happen. There's no way. No, if they I know. Was Kobe Bryant number one over Allen Iverson? Forget it. I even if they had taken him sixth, I think people would have been mad. But it's just kind of funny because. Once the high schoolers started to have success, there is a world where five years later, no somebody, doubt. Like, somebody like Kobe could yeah. have gone number one in a draft. It was not happening in 1996. So anyway, I, I have Agreed. Kobe Bryant as the first pick. Now you're on the clock at number two for uh, for the sake of the redraft. Toronto had this pick. Okay, this is... Uh, I'm not doing this to get attention. I'm not doing this for any other reason then there's no way I would take Iverson here. And I think 90% of the people listening are like, are you nuts? You have to take Iverson after Kobe. I don't think anybody would take Iverson over Kobe. I don't think it's that ridiculous. But Iverson, and I can go through all this Iverson stuff if you want to, or we can wait until we pick him, but I would take Nash. I think Nash, plugging him in to any scenario, he makes everybody better. He should have shot more. Um, honestly, I always thought if he was healthier later on, and this isn't me pretending he's all of a sudden healthy, but he would have been an awesome two guard at like 20 minutes a game, just hitting threes. Uh, but he just, you know, he, the back couldn't stay healthy, but his impact on a team was far more positive than Iverson's. And I would take Nash on our redraft. So I have Nash ranked higher on my hall of fame pyramid and I'm with you. I would take him higher as well. I loved Iverson. I'm actually in the super defensive about Iverson camp because I knew what's happened over the last 10 years. You could feel the seeds of it being planted last uh, in the 2000s, where as the future generations came and they had no idea what it was like to watch him play and see him, all the stuff that he brought to the table, it was never going to translate to 50 years later. Oh, what is, what was this guy? What's going on here? This, the advanced metrics were never going to be his friend. With all that said, I just would rather have Nash. And, you know, I think his teams were consistently more successful. He made other guys better. He could play with just about anybody. And, you know, his peak basically goes from 98 through 2011. Iverson's peak, he it really kicks in in 98. And he has, you know, he averages 29 a game from 1999 through 2008. 10 straight years, 29 a game. It's weird he never had that second, you know, really qualified all-star other than Carmelo when he got to Denver. On the other hand, he played with a lot of good players who were kind of qualified to be second, second guys on a really good team. Like when they got to Kembe, he was the defensive player of the year. He was still a top four center. He had Jerry Stackhouse who eventually became a 30 point scorer. You know, I, 
it, it's not like he never played with anybody. I don't think it's like a T-Max situation. Right, but the difference is, is like T-Max style didn't make the rest of the roster think like, what am I doing here? Iverson style, like he, they didn't get rid of Stackhouse because they didn't like Stackhouse. It's like, let's try something different. And yes, they tried the Larry Hughes thing, which we went over in one of the other drafts. Uh, they had Andre Iguodala there. I even really liked that Theo Ratliff group, but then Larry Brown's like, look, I can bring in Dikembe, so I'm going to go ahead and do that kind of stuff. But Van, that Horn, year, Van Horn was the other one they had. And Van Horn right. was the second pick in the draft. He brought in these guys. So that first year Iverson comes in, and this is the difference. And look, no one's trying to tell you that Iverson's LeBron, but I think that there's a lot of shortcomings here when you look at the overall career arc here. And I'm not trying to do the analytics, let's trash him, you know, the shooting efficiency and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the guy was that small playing like 41, 42 minutes a game. I think he played like 41 minutes a game for his career, and he was yep. still doing it at the very end. Um, but when he go, it comes into the league, a bad team goes 22 and 60. You know what else is kind of weird? I was looking at the Sixers' attendance numbers during all this. They weren't as good as you would think they would have been. It, like the, the Philly fans like, turned on that team pretty quickly after the 01 thing. Um, the I, think that year, was, I think that was uh, going on across the board with the NBA, though. The late 90s were rough because that was when the salaries went way up. The, the fans had a lot of trouble identifying with the players. The hip-hop influence was so strong at that point. And there definitely was a little bit of a disconnect. That's when Stern started to put it in the dress code, the rookie stale. That was years so, later, though, after the Detroit and Pacers thing. No, I'm saying like the 98 through 02, there's a lot of a, a lot of tug of war between Stern and the players and just trying to get them to be more personable to the fans and to think a lot about you know, how they presented themselves. And I don't, it was a very strange era. It was weird to go to the games back then. Like the Celtic fans didn't like Antoine Walker for two years. They did not like the Antoine shimmy. They do you blame Ja Rule? <laughs> Maybe it, there was some weird societal stuff going on back then though. Like you could definitely but, feel it. Okay. But I'm, I can only compare Philly to the other attendance numbers to the other 30 teams and they are lower True. For in total attendance than you would think. Like, it was kind of weird. So, look, bad records those first two years. He gets to the second round of his third year, second round of his fourth year. Then they make the NBA Finals, and that's pretty much it, man. From 2002-2003 season, it's a six-game loss in the second round of the Pistons. He never got to the second round again. He right. never got to the second round again. So I understand when you get Iverson, you get somebody that, you know, we applaud him for keeping it real. And... That's awesome. We applaud we we applaud him for kind of being anti corporate, even though he was that. He did transcend. He was a smaller guy dunking on people. He was, you know, Newport News, the whole deal. Like we get it. But if you really break down, and I'm not even trying to do the analytic things here, you just had to play a certain style that was only his style, and it was far less successful than I think people ever want to remember historically. So I would actually take Ray Allen ahead of him in my draft if you're not taking Iverson third. So it's funny. I had Allen ahead of uh, Iverson in the Hall of Fame pyramid. I mean, I'm sorry. I had uh, Iverson ahead of Ray Allen in the Hall of Fame pyramid. I th I yeah. just think he had a more meaningful career. The two things, I, I agree with 90% of what you just said. Two things Iverson brought to the table that can't be taken for granted. And I wrote about this in my book when my thing about him was about when you get season tickets in the mail and you're just looking at the schedule and you're like, who are, my, who are the eight guys I have to see this year? 
and it might be five guys. It might be seven. It might be nine. Like if, if you're doing it this year, you know, if we had the NBA right now, you'd be like, you'd, you'd take the Laker game. You'd put a check mark next to that. You'd, you'd do Giannis. You do the Celtics. But if you're just talking about individual players, there's not many. Like I, I really like seeing Dame Lillard in person. Like you go on down the line and there's maybe eight to 12 guys. Iverson was always on that list for me, no matter how his team was doing. I thought he was an incredible guy to see in person because he was really like probably five, nine and a half, five, ten. The the way he carried himself, how much he played, he never came out. He carried himself like he was like a seven foot, 300 pound guy and he wasn't. So I would say that for that. And then the other thing is the respect the other guys had for him, which I think matters. I think when you talk to some of these guys, which both of us have had the privilege of doing, and sometimes it's eye-opening who they who they go out of their way to gush about. I think Kyrie was like that in in you know the 2016-17 range where the other players were almost like his biggest advocates. And I think with Iverson, the other players, regardless of whether the win totals and the other stuff backed it up, they really respected him. And he, even in the All-Star game, like he was always in crunch time. He was always, you know, it always made sense that he had the ball at the end of the game, no matter how many good players were on the floor. So it's a really weird career that I can't, almost can't compare it to. Nobody like him now, you could even say. It would be like if Damian Lillard was the toughest guy in the league. and But his team wasn't even as successful as it is now. But it felt like they were more successful. That was Iverson. I have no counter to that. I think the best thing you could do would be Jordan without rings. <laughs> like if Jordan just, you know, if Jordan couldn't get past the Pacers in the second round for whatever reason. Uh, but that it's just impossible. It's it's impossible to even try to do that. Like, hey, imagine a a twenty year arc of Jordan without success. I mean, as I say it out loud, it's just it's impossible to ever vision envision that. But I think all the pro Iverson arguments become about a lot of the stuff that doesn't equate to winning. But I have no counter. Like, I made sure I got a chance to go see him because I wanted to see him. That Iverson remember- Ray Allen showdown is one of my favorite basketball. It's probably one of my favorite sporting events ever just being in the moment with my buddies in college and watching those two go at it in the biggest tournament. I absolutely love it. So this is not an anti-Iverson thing. This is strictly a, he did not care about winning. He did not approach the game in a winning way for me to pass on somebody like Steve Nash. And I think Nash was definitely the right pick. I cannot figure out what the ceiling was on an Iverson team. We saw it in 2001. They made the, the East finals. Wasn't that good? I East went wasn't that good. That team. And I got to be honest, I don't think the right team made the finals that year for the East. I thought the Bucks were better. Milwaukee, I did too. Yeah, and you watch those games, and it's kind of hard to believe the Bucks didn't beat them. The Bucks just seem like more of a finals team. Um, I Iverson had a better career. He was a more memorable player. If I'm drafting this, if I'm a GM, and I have time machine access. In 1996, I would take Ray Allen with the third pick because I'm getting, I'm getting him for 18 years. I'm getting this guy who, at his peak, which he had a couple really nice ones on Milwaukee, um, you know, was the alpha dog on a Bucks team that almost made the finals, but just in general was one of the most efficient guys we've had in the last 25 years. I can put him with anybody. He goes and has a second life with the Celtics. And then this third life with Miami. And I was just watching uh game six, 2013. 
I just think he's a safer bet if I'm trying to win a title than Allen Iverson was. Now, I didn't realize that at any point during Iverson's career. But now if I'm looking back, if my goal is to win the title, Ray Allen is a better pick. He just is. So I would take Ray Allen third. Ray's interesting in that you said it. He'd had like these two versions. I, I think it's three versions because... No, there I'm, is three. The Milwaukee oh, version. Maybe it's four. Maybe it's yeah. four though because, I mean, what he started doing... You know, in Milwaukee, he's he's 20 a game. The three-point numbers are just crazy. Uh, I remember when I was doing that Celtics TV stuff for years, and, you know, he first got there in 07, 08, and I was working with Donnie Marshall, who knew Ray from the UConn years, and and Donnie was a little bit older than him. And Donnie was, was just a great guy to talk hoops with, and he comes back, he goes, man, he goes, Ray, like, changed his shot. I'm like, Ray Allen changed his jump shot? I'm like, why would, like... Why would anyone do that? That's like DiCaprio deciding, you know, I want to, I want to do spoken word. You're like, what? Right. So Ray did this little thing with like his hands at the end of it. And, and Ray was right. Like Ray made this tweak to what already looked like the wettest jumper going. And he had this awesome Seattle stretch where he put up huge, he's 25, 26 a game. So when he came to Boston, 07, 08, and that was kind of the first piece when it looked like they were going to trade Paul, but Ainge was always great and not trading Pierce just because he felt like, oh, the rest of the team isn't good. But Ainge was brilliant with that. And I know it sounds stupid to say brilliant, but so many other people wouldn't do it. Be like, hey, we're not any good. All right, well, this guy that isn't 30, that's really good. Let's get rid of him. <laughs> you know, like other teams did that. And they add Ray to that for Jeff Green, which seems criminal yeah. because Ray still at that point, you know, he'd had the ankles things. He comes in 32, but that led to KG and all that stuff. Ray sacrificed more with his approach to the game than the other two guys did. Now, I still think KG and Paul were better than Ray. And Ray then becomes this guy who's trying to figure out around him because he was a better shooter with the ball and then found a way. I, I really think it took him a while to kind of get comfortable in that you're just not going to have the ball in his hands that much. And he found that with Miami because it was weird, too. Do you remember in Boston when he started to kind of lose his handle? Because he wasn't... Yeah. He wasn't dribbling as much in Boston's offense, and then he just kind of lost his hand a little bit there. So, I, uh, I man, I wonder how bad people are going to get about this. So, you passed on Iverson for Ray, but the analytics will tell you that Ray's behind only Kobe in like two or three of the categories. Well, so I'm looking at this like not who is going to who's going to sell more jerseys and who's going to be more fun to have on my team. If I'm just trying to win a title, Ray Allen has to be the pick. You look at. His numbers from 2000 to 2007, he is the most ahead of his time guy we've had in the last 30 years. He's averaging 23, 5, and 4. His 45, 40, 89 percentages. He's shooting 40, 40 from three, but he's taking seven threes. And this is at a time nobody was taking, you know, if he took four threes a game, that was a lot. I think if you put him in the era that we're in now, he's one of the 10 best guys in the league every year. That version of Ray Allen year after year is somebody you could build a franchise around. And I don't know. I, the longevity, I think, pushes it over the top to me. This guy was good in 1997. In 1994, in 2014, he's still in the finals playing crunch time for that Miami team. We're talking, you know, uh, 18 years. Iverson just flamed out a little too fast for me. Iverson's career was basically over by 2009. Yeah, he hasn't played in a decade. Yeah. 
you know, he had so, that weird Memphis thing, and then he closed it out in Philly just as kind of like a novelty deal. And remember, he still wanted to play. But at that point, too, like if you really want to dig into all this stuff, and I don't know how far we want, I don't really want to get sidetracked in here, but Iverson, if he played today with the off-the-court stuff, he'd be getting suspended from the league. So his career is effectively his last good year as a legitimately effective player is 2009. And I remember, and I have this, it's in my archives, you can look it up. Um, not you, but anybody out there. When Denver trades uh, Iverson to Detroit for Billups and people are on TV going, great trade for the Pistons. You know, you get Allen Iverson. And I'm like, you, I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to basketball games and watching League Pass. Like Iverson shot as a, as a perennial all-star franchise guy. It's just gone. He doesn't have it anymore. So I think the fact that his kind of stretch was just shorter than uh, than Ray's, I think that has to matter. And the other thing I would ask, so if Iverson, if Milwaukee beats them that, that, that round, which is really conceivable, and I think they should have. I really think the wrong team won, and I think that was one of the most poorly officiated series ever. How do we remember Iverson? If we don't even know, like no finals trips, I think he's thought about completely differently where, you know, you're almost thinking, I'm trying to think who the football quarterback is that we would compare him to. Uh, Flacco. No, <laughs> Flacco. <laughs> <laughs> no, that one is nice. Uh, I, I really think that 2001, like I used to always think LeBron deserves like a half a ring for that 2007 NBA finals appearance because of yeah. what they did to Detroit. Like he'd only been in the league, you know, not even five years. Detroit still, you know, they look at themselves as the bully Rashid's guaranteeing wins after every single playoff loss. They kept losing. And LeBron takes him out with that epic game in 2007 where it was like kind of the first, like, whoa, what is this guy? And then they get smoked by the Spurs. Not a big deal. Same thing as kind of like a, a Shaq Penny deal with Orlando going up against Akeem. But that 2001 finals, they get the first game against LA and they get mopped. He's gotten a lot of run out. Like, I feel like, I'm not saying people like, look, the Lakers are supposed to beat them. We've just gone through how bad we didn't think the East was that year. But it's it's salvaged Iverson in a way where, you know, I, I got to read about Chris Paul sucking all the time because he can't get out of the second round. But Iverson, as the lead guy, the undisputed lead guy for every team he was on until, you know, look, the Denver thing was kind of heeing back and forth. And you're right. By the time he got to Detroit, it was over. Uh, he gets Did you. I'm not saying like I, you know, I don't want to turn this in. I'm, I'm sounding very anti-Iverson, but I'm I'm just saying like no, we're, 2000 we're both pro Iverson. 2001 is so positive for him, and I think that's the love that people have for him. You know, like it's never ever held against him that that's kind of the only real playoff run that you had, like the only one. Right. Well, the other thing, and again, I I didn't want to rely on the stats too much because I really think it's important to mention how how larger than life he was at the time and what it was like to watch him in person. I just loved Iverson, but you know, his stats, part of the reason his stats were so impressive was he just played an incredible amount of minutes. If you go to his per 36 numbers, his per 36 scoring average is 23.3. His per, his actual scoring average in real life is 26.7. He played, so he, he was, as you said earlier, he's playing for his career. He played 41.1 <laughs> minutes a game. It's, uh, it's, like, um, it's like he's Will Chamberlain. And, and it I wasn't think, like he was getting any sleep. You know? I do, right. It's true. He's up 24 hours a day. So I, if you look at his per 36, 
He's he's 23, 5, and 3. He's 42.5% uh, from the field and 31% from three. And his stats really aren't different than all of Ray Allen's prime because Ray Allen's playing 35, 36 minutes a game, not 40. It's honestly not crazy to think Ray Allen is a better pick than Allen Iverson because if you're trying to win a title, he's just a safer bet. You can put Iverson, you have to move your whole team around what he does. With Ray Allen, you didn't have to do that. So I'm taking Ray Allen third. Uh, I, you know, you mentioned Ray Allen being ahead of the time. Uh, I was looking up, I looked at one of the years where he had like 7.78 attempts there a game from three, which is just, it can't express how monumental that is in like 0102. Eight players took 400 or more threes. Of course, like number one and number three were, were Twan and Pierce, which right. shouldn't even count because the beginning of, of the Patino, Twan, Pierce thing was just gross with the amount of threes. So this guy's took, like, you think guys take bad shots now? You think D'Angelo Russell or Zach Levine get a little aggressive every now with a three-point attempt? You got you got nothing on early Twan. Um, yeah. So eight players, 400 or more attempts. The past full season, 18-19, 43 players took 400 or more threes. No one more than James Harden, who took 1,028 threes and also 858 free throws. So Harden took almost 1,900 threes and free throws for a full season. Enjoy that. That's pretty gross, but nothing was grosser than watching a Kyle Lowry offensive foul mixtape that came out from so far this season. I think he has 47 charges taken. I counted 46 flops. I would rather watch a Joe Exotic sex tape than Kyle Lowry <laughs> taking charges. You know, I saw that tape floating around and I was like, I hope Priscilla doesn't Which, see that. Which, the Joe He's Exotic gonna... one? No, either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Lowry one, I didn't even make it through it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch this and then I'm going to count how many flops there are and then I'm going to tweet something really shitty. And I I had a, I actually closed out of the video. I couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. So you you have Iverson fourth, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's he not can't get drop ridiculous the... here. Yeah. Right. So Vancouver with Ray Allen and then Iverson with uh, going to Milwaukee at four. And, I, you know, I know people are going to get pissed about the Iverson thing. I remember um, remember TNT did that redraft of the all-timers and Barkley took Allen Iverson first and it almost cost like a riot. It almost caused a riot on the internet. People are like, what are you doing? How? You, remember they were all drafted in their all-time teams and it was a snake draft. And Barkley had like the third pick. He took Iverson. And people were like, you've just ruined this whole exercise. And he's like, I don't care. Alan Iverson was great. And every television producer everywhere was like, how do we find the next Barkley? So with the fifth pick, which in the, uh, in the actual draft was Minnesota, there's two, well, there's three guys on the board. Just so for the people listening at home, we got Jermaine O'Neal, Ben Ben Wallace, Paige Stakovic, Marcus Camby, Stefan Marbury, even Antoine Walker. All those guys are on the board. I am taking, because this will be a recurring theme with these redrafts that we do. I watched Jermaine O'Neal be the best guy on teams that could have won the title. And that matters to me more than anybody else on that list. I thought long and hard about Ben Wallace, but his prime just wasn't good enough. The Jermaine O'Neal thing, really in the running for strangest uh, basketball reference page, he's on Portland for four years, not playing. Yeah, not playing, right? Remember, Patino was always trying to trade for him. 
Yeah. Oh, every year. And he's just buried on these Portland teams behind Rasheed Wallace, Sabonis, Dale Davis is on there and they're not giving him any run. And people like us are like, he's being thrown. He was kind of like a Roddy Bubois type situation where the trade asset of him was so much more valuable than if you actually watched <laughs> him in a game, you're like, uh, but then he, then Indiana trades for him. Oh, I guess they traded Dale Davis for him or as, as part of it. But then, then he became a really, really, really good player in Indiana there for a couple of years. And that 04 series against Detroit, he's great. I thought the 05 year, the melee, he misses half the season. He's really good that year. He averaged 24 a game that year. I thought he was awesome in the uh, Celtics playoff series that year. And I really liked that post-melee Pacers team just in general. Um, but I, for the amount of years he played and all that, I think he's the pick. So I'm taking him fifth. What do you think of that? I love it because I had him, I think, higher than than I thought I would when I went into it. But I'm with you. If you go peak Jermaine O'Neal, he's a really good player. I mean, he put up some massive numbers there with the Pacers. But you're right. Like he started, he started 18 games those first four years. He played 10 minutes a game, 13 minutes a game, nine minutes a game, 12 minutes a game when he was in Portland. And that was you know, he was still kind of part of this fallout of the high school thing. And you'd just be like, oh, you know, look at this guy. And honestly, too, even though he was kind of this weird hybrid center power forward, that's what was so appealing about him, too, is that he could face up a little bit, but he could still do some of that traditional stuff. And he would have been in his prime younger, a really nice player today because he was a really, I thought, a pretty good athlete. Then he slowed down a little bit. But after that Pacers thing, I mean, it was over. Like his career was kind of like over by the time he was 29 and he still played a another six or so years. So I, I don't mean to be harsh about it. Like he had a good year in nine, 10 in Miami at, at 31, but he's playing 28 minutes. He's scoring 13 and seven. And he's, he's just kind of a rotation guy at that point, even though he was somebody I still really liked. I, I liked it. I didn't, I didn't have him that high, but I'm, I'm not anti Jermaine O'Neal at all. Uh, so, so one, I, one I, thing with him that I didn't realize he made 13 mall NBA in Oh two and Oh three. And then he made second team all NBA in 04. So for three straight years, he was a top 15 guy and a top 10 guy in 04. And I think he would have been a top 10 guy in 05 too, if the melee hadn't happened. I also think this point can't be hit strongly enough. I really do think the 05 Pacers were the best NBA team that year. And now you could say, well, the reason they didn't win is because run our test was a lunatic and got into a huge melee and, and the seeds of it were planted during that fight that precipitated the melee and that team was going to blow up anyway. That team was, there was just too much craziness on that team. It never, they never could have made it eight months. You can make that case, but that 05 finals was one of the more unsatisfying finals. It never felt like those were the two best teams. The series itself wasn't that good. That Spurs team that won Duncan, it just was not like a peak Duncan performance. I think he was pretty banged up. I really think Indiana was the best team that year and he was the best guy in that team. So that's got to matter too. Yeah. But that was also that, that finals where we had some, you know, 84 to 69 in game one. Yeah. Spurs. Indiana, Indiana liked that stuff though. They, they remember the year before the Detroit, they had like a 66 to 60 game or something. Yeah. There's, there's worse ones to point out, which I yeah. do think we should do as a rewatchable. We should watch the worst playoff game in modern history. Like one of those, one of those games are at 70 to 60 or something with the Pistons. No, I know the game. It was Celtics Pistons. Cause I went to a 66, 64 final. <laughs> I think there's another one. Stanford, Steve 
hit me up with this. He said, I think there's some Knicks game where I forget who the famous guy was. He'd bet on the game, but he also done lightning on it. So you pay a penalty on how many points under or you win over. Oh. And he had the over and it went like 30 points under. So I'll have to double check because Stanford mm. Steve checked in to be like, hey, you guys should do this. All right. So you got Jermaine O'Neal. I'm going to I'm go going ahead. five. So you're, you're now on the clock at number six, which would have been the Celtics pick. I'm going to just tell Camby to take the mass pike in and be a Celtic. Uh, Camby played 17 years. Yes, I thought he was going to be better. His lead, you know who the most points per game he ever scored was his rookie year with Toronto? 15 a game. That's the most he ever scored for a season. And he was double figures, 12, 10, 12, 11. And he basically wasn't again until he got to Denver a little bit. He's defensive player of the year. I just felt like he did more at UMass offensively and that when he got to the NBA, I don't know if it's because he was skinny. I don't know if it was strictly because of the roster development. And the NBA has a way of kind of eating itself in that, oh yeah, right? Like as good as you were in college, like you have to adjust to us. I didn't think Camby was going to have to make that adjustment that he was going to be a good player a role player. So I guess I ended up being wrong, but I was watching him. He had 32 in that first game against Kentucky when Kentucky was number one. It was at uh, with the Palace and Auburn Hills. UMass was fifth. That UMass thing was weird for all of us that were from Eastern Mass because we're like, are we really rooting for Western Mass? But it was so much fun with Cal, Lou Rowe the year before, and all those UMass guys. So I, I really thought that Camby was going to be able to do a little bit more offensively and because he showed it at UMass, and then he just kind of became a very specific, uh, not a role player. That's that's not saying enough about him. He's a starter. He played for a long time, but I still thought there was a version of him that would, had a higher ceiling. After the break, I'm going to read you all the trades Marcus Camby was ever involved in. Let's take a break to talk about one of my favorite companies, Roots of Fight. We have never talked about them on this podcast, except for when they made a bunch of ringer sweatshirts for us that were absolutely ridiculously great. Go to their website. You can find awesome t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies. Um, they did a black history tribute thing for, with Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali, Jack Johnson, and Jackie Robinson. You can pick by the sport, boxing, martial arts, wrestling, baseball, basketball, football. They have an incredible Julius Irving collection. I was on there this week and ended up buying a bunch of stuff. I love their, uh, I love their XXL t-shirts be to sleep in like giant night shirts too. So anyway, I was getting a bunch of stuff and then they were nice enough. They noticed my name and added a few things in there. And I was just like, you know what? Even though they keep it low key, they love word of mouth stuff. I got to shout these guys out right now. You can go to the store. It's 20% off with portions of all sales going to WHO for the, uh, COVID-19 response fund. But if you've never checked out this website, go check out the stuff that they have. And I got to say the, the t-shirts that they make and the hoodies they make are probably my favorite t-shirts and hoodies right now. Now, granted, you're taking the advice of a 50 year old guy, but I'm telling you my son, who's 12 years old, who's actually cool. He loves this stuff more than anybody. And they made the ringer sweatshirts, which were, we, we had, they made the ringer sweatshirts. And at the hoodies, the zip hoodies. And at Grantland, we had a friend of mine at Nike, John Nako. What's up, John? He made uh, he made us these awesome Grantland hoodies that uh, are, those are two of the coolest things I own. So anyway, rootsoffight.com. 
if you just online, you need it want to check out t-shirts, even just to check out the site and have, have fun just zooming through all the different things they make. Go check them out, rootsoffight.com. Back to the pod. Okay, without further ado, every trade that Marcus Camby was in. June 98, traded to the Knicks for Sean Marks, Charles Oakley, and Cash. That was a great June, trade for the Knicks. June 2002, traded by the Knicks with Nene. And Mark Jackson for Antonio McDice, Frank Williams, and a second-round pick. 2008, traded by Denver with a 2010 second to the Clippers for a second-round draft pick. That was like the rare good Clippers trade because I he was actually half-decent that year and, and had some trade value. Uh, traded in 2010 February to the Blazers for Steve That was Blake Willie Tra- Warren. Willie Warren, there you go. Uh, February 2010, traded to the Trailblazers for Steve Blake and Travis Outlaw. Had a nice little uh, Blazers resurgence. Then traded to Houston for Johnny Flynn, Hashim Thabit in a second. Oh, we're not done. Traded to the Knicks for Tony Douglas, Josh Harrelson, Jerome Jordan, and a second. Then Jorts. traded to the Knicks with Novak, Quentin Richardson, and a second. For Andrea Bargnani. Side note, Steve Novak would be a max player in today's game. No question. So he was he he was involved in a lot of stuff. I have a great Marcus Camby fact for you. He makes, he has the iconic lockout 99 playoffs run where Ewing gets hurt and they're actually better off with Camby. They come back the next year, they almost make the finals again in 2000. Indiana beats them. He then makes the playoffs. One, two, three, four, ten more times. First round or not, every time. <laughs> yeah, but the difference is between, like, I hold the playoff stuff against you unless I really like you, then I'll find a way to spin it in my favor. But if you're the lead guy, it's kind of on you where it can be. I don't blame him for yeah. that. I'm just yeah. 10 straight first round. That's exits. amazing. It's really, really, that might have to be near a record, right? 10 straight. If people say shit to Mello, Mello will be like, hey, you ever heard of Marcus Camby? Like, get off of my back. Because I always felt like I, the Mellow knocks were like Mellow. Every time you look at Mellow's playoff losses when they're all the first round exits, they almost always lost the team that was better than them anyway. Um, true. So that's that's kind of a pro Mellow thing, but it's it just sounds better to be like, oh, he sucks in the playoffs. So do you I have, have any problem with the Camby? Do, do you, did I make a mistake? How do you look at the board right now? I uh, I have a Marcus Camby point that's just for you. I'm going to... okay. I'm going to lightly fry it in some sesame oil and give you some dipping sauce with it. And you can just eat it because you're going to enjoy it so much. Hold on. Hold on. Mar- Should I put on his jersey for this? <laughs> you don't have to. It'll take two seconds. Marcus Camby, ahead of his time. Yeah. If if you take 1999 Marcus Camby and you move him forward 20 years, he's like the perfect five. Yeah, right? I mean, Tyson Chandler's still making money. I think Marcus Camby would have been, like, potentially, like, really in demand. Like, if if Capella ends up getting $14 million a year in a first-round pick, I feel like Camby was better than Clint Capella, right? I don't know. I think Capella was a product of... Uh, Capella ended up being better than I thought he would be, but Capella also was a massive beneficiary of Harden. You know? Because everybody's freaked out the whole time. Seventh pick. 
Um, this is tough. I had these guys. I had I had Canby, Wallace, and Stereakovic all all huddled together. I guess I'm taking Ben Wallace at seven, undrafted, which remains incredible. Um, yeah, because he was like six six school Virginia, a way shorter kind of prime than I would have wanted. Chicago signs him away from Detroit. It's a big deal, and within a year, he's kind of like. It's kind of like semi luggage. They wouldn't let him wear a headband. Remember, it's weird. But um, they, you could argue he was the best player in the 2004 Pistons in that playoff run. He's he might have been the most valuable. I know Chauncey won the uh, Finals MVP, uh, and I I think it's hard to say who was the most important player on that Pistons team because one of the things that made them special was those five guys together and the way they complement each other and how good defensively they were. But Ben Wallace was an absolutely destructive uh, player there for, you look at four straight, uh, five straight years, Jesus. Um, dating back to Orlando, just completely blowing it and getting rid of him in the, uh, in the Grand Hill trade, just having no idea what they have or, or what they had. You go after that. He shows up in Detroit in 2001. And from 2001 to 2005, he's 13 rebounds a game, three blocks a game, and one and a half steals a game. Like he, he's his block steals there for half a decade are Hakeem David Robinson y, you know? And in, in person, it was the same thing. Like it really did feel like he was the best defensive player in the league, uh, the biggest defensive asset anybody had there for a while. He he held his own against Shaq in o, in o four when Shaq was really trying to go back into the wayback machine and really only had one great game, game against him. And uh, I don't know. I mean, he brought so many bad things to the table. The free throw shooting was abominable. He was an offensive liability, but just figured out how to do so many different things. I would just rather have him than anybody else on this list. So there you go. I loved him. Uh yeah, the best version of him was unbelievable. The way he could switch. He's listed at 6'9". I don't know. I don't even know. But it didn't matter. It was unbelievable watching what he could do as a defensive player. And that's what I really loved about that Pistons team is that you had Wallace who could switch out to anyone on the perimeter. Like, he just could. But then you had Chauncey who could switch and defend some power forward in the post. He wasn't going to give up because Chauncey was so damn strong and smart. And Tayshawn had length to at least challenge a little bit. And then Rashid's there who could kind of be all over the place. I mean, it was really an incredible roster one through five of guys that you know just found a way to complement each other. I remember, look, I, I thought when we were making fun of the idea that, you know, we liked um, I, some of my misses, Marcus Pfizer being one of them. When I watched <laughs> Wallace in his fourth year at Orlando, yeah. I liked I liked him. I mean, he played 81 games that year. And I go, you know who I always kind of like a little bit? But you're right. I mean, he never cracked double figures. He ended up in the 30% of the free throw line. It was getting awful. I mean, it was like he was flirting with 50, and then it got worse. And I remember Larry Brown. There's always a very good lesson, too, for younger who people down there. Like, they were giving Ben Wallace some touches. Remember how weird that was when they Oklahoma City would let Perk get the first offensive touch of every game, and he would, like, get a play in the post, and you just be right. like, Why, what are you doing? Right. Um, I, that was sort of just this thing that the Thunder always seemed to want to do. Probably Westbrook wanted to do it, and everybody just else had to listen. Uh, but 
Larry Brown, serious. Larry Brown would talk about wanting Ben Wallace to get more touches. And I'd go, why would you ever do that with this guy? He's a zero on offense. But it was a really good point is that it sucks to just rebound and defend the all game. So the more we can get him a touch every now and then, the more engaged he's going to be. So when there are plays that run that aren't the best offensive option, understand that there's there's a payoff to it if you have the right guy. And Wallace was that guy. So I peak Wallace, I I just loved. His first 75 playoff games for the Pistons from 02 to 05. He's 14 rebounds a game, 2.6 blocks, 2.0 steals. And he was just a menace. And he he barely, he didn't even crack 10 points a game during that stretch, but I, he I never just, did. He's one of those guys that if you bet against them, you know, if you're actually like literally gambled against the Pistons in a playoff game, I it, I just hated going against him. I always felt like he was going to do the right thing at the right time. And you got I got to say the 05 finals, him and Rashid together, the job they did on Duncan. Duncan's never been treated like that defensively over the course of 2 weeks in his peak like he was in that. Like they really they really throttled him. So I'm going seven. He goes to the Clippers. The number eight pick, this would have been the Nets. Who do you have? I also didn't, I should have mentioned Rip Hamilton in that group. Uh, real quick on Wallace follow-up. Would he thrive today or a liability? Because it's a tough answer. I'm not sure I have the answer. I think he's worse off now because you can't play four on five offensively now with the spacing. I don't, I don't know where he would stand on the court. I mean, you'd almost have to use him like Philly was using Ben Simmons during those playoff games when they didn't know where to put him and he was just kind of circling around on the baseline. That's really the only thing you could do with him. Otherwise, he would screw up. You know, he would either clog the middle or he would screw You could set picks with him, but nobody's going to guard him stepping off for a three or anything. I don't, I'm not really sure what you would do. I think he was in the right era. Okay, but that's the argument against. But think about the big guys that he had to defend at his size that he was giving up all the time. And now if you look at how small the front lines are, I still think if you're good enough, you can get away with one guy that's not an offensive threat. I mean, the goal now is to put five guys out there to get your bucket. But I think Wallace would beat... I, I'm betting on prime Wallace to find a way to abuse the other five in a size-down league to maybe even get you a few more points just because he's dominating the board so much. Um, so I'm not going to completely write him off because of spacing. No, I don't, I'm not writing him off either. I just think he was in the right era. I think the thing that would have really helped him was how many more possessions and the pace of how people play now. I think, you know, he was so athletic that he would have loved that, right? Versus yeah, just getting up and running around with thing. Yeah, like Draymond. So maybe, now, now you talk me into it. Maybe yeah. he would have been better now. Let's bring him in. Ben Wallace, come on in. Uh, all right, you're the eighth pick. Who do you have? Peja. Yep. You know, yeah. there's an argument for Peja ahead of Camby, ahead of Wallace. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Peja flirting. You would know this probably better off the top of your head, but what did he come in second in the MVP one year? Was it third? No, but but he was. Or was he just no. in the conversation and I'm I'm not remembering the voting? No, he had a he had a year. Was he first team all NBA? He only made three all-star teams. Oh yeah, oh four. He was second team all NBA. And yeah, he, was he fourth in the 2004 MVP? Is that possible? I thought there was yeah. a year he was way he was, up there. Yeah, Our 2004 MVP ballot, Kevin Garnett first, Duncan second, Jermaine O'Neal third, Peja four, Kobe Bryant five, Shaq six, Benoit seven. Saying Shaq out loud sixth just sounds fucking stupid. 
Well, that was the year when he. I know, but it was that was right. It was after everything had kind of calmed down. But I, I don't know. Just it's one of those Shaq MVP things. So it's funny. Peja was another little ahead of his time guy. Never took never took seven threes in a season. Year after year, starting in 01, he's shooting 40% from three. He has basically an entire decade until 2009 of shooting 40% from three. From 01 to 08, 41% from three, taking almost six a game, 20 a game. A guy who I think if he's playing now would have been so much more dangerous and so much more fun to watch. It's hard to think of him without thinking of him bricking that shot against in game seven against the Lakers when he just had both hands around his neck. But he rebounded at least a little bit from it. Yeah, big time numbers. And he was huge. Like this guy was a guy that could handle. I mean, he's listed at 6'10. I, you know, I don't know. I'm mean, shaving an inch here, but he never felt like the one. You, know, you never felt like, okay, that's who their best player is. And, you know, we go back to the beginning of the Weber stuff and how good that Sacramento team was from a talent standpoint. But he put up some massive numbers, man. What like for, t- for, for somebody we never think of as, like, the key franchise guy, just, you're right. Like, those, those middle years there, there's just, this is unbelievable. This is the eighth pick of this draft, and this is a guy that's still available. I'm going to lightly fry another great point and give you a little more dipping sauce with this one. Is he clay with no PR? <laughs> Whoa. I don't think I responded well enough to your fried appetizer thing on the Camby thing. I just was sort of blown away by the whole deal. And I was kind of maybe just saying I want to change into that jersey because I was debating a tank top for the Zoom anyway. But yeah, what's he probably handled that ball a hell of a lot more than Clay did. That has to be because Clay, that's the beauty of Clay, he doesn't dribble. He was just as good of a three-point shooter as Clay was. He was actually, you could run entire offenses around him. I don't, I actually think if Clay was on a bad team, you could have run offenses around him, but they were weirdly similar, like what their skill sets were. And Clay, I think, um, you know, hits the lottery and ends up with Steph. I think if Peja had been on a team like that, we would have had one conversation about him over the last 10 years. When was the last Peja Stojakovic conversation anyone's had? It's never happened. Yeah, right. Like, I forgot he was in New Orleans for four years. He also had a very, very sneaky, nobody remembers this, 2011 Mavs. (laughs) Big big brother to Dirk kind of thing. Did he play in the playoffs for them? I'm going to look. Oh, yeah. Look at that. He's playing seven, playing 18 minutes a game for the 11 Mavs in the playoffs. Oh, wait, that's right. No, no, no. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nobody, nobody remembers that though. He's never mentioned as like, oh, remember when Peja got his ring? No, because the whole collection of those guys was that whole eleven Mavs team is just so weird. Because if you're like, wait a minute, who's? Because it was, you probably argue the least talented team. I don't know. At least, yeah, uh, of the last twenty years, least talented team to win a title. It was certainly the uh, the only team that only had one great guy to win a title. Yeah, I mean, it's kid. Jason Terry. Terry. Marion. Chandler Marion. But they, great role person. Yeah, Peja. Yeah. How about that? And Roddy Boubois, the untouchable Roddy Boubois. The asset. All right, ninth pick. This normally, we're we're only going to 14. 
Ninth pick was Dallas. Uh, Marbury has officially fallen far enough. That guy was a huge asset. He, <laughs> I, I remember when he ended up on Phoenix finally after the kid trade, really, really enjoying him and Amari together. That one playoff series against the Suns. I, you know, he put up a, huge numbers. Like every he, night you'd be like 30 and 10 again from this guy. And he's somebody that if you put him now and you spread the floor for him, he was one of those guys like Kevin Johnson's like this uh, from from way back. There's guys now like this, like Westbrook's definitely like this, spread the floor. He's going by people and getting the rim. Marbury could get by whoever he wanted, if he is, wanted. Is Marbury Lillard with a worst attitude? <laughs> I feel like we've done like four Lillard comps on this pod already. I don't know. He, uh, you know, it's a classic. What if he KG gets this giant contract? Yeah. Then the rules change, and Marbury's just bummed out. He knows he's never going to make nearly as much as KG, and he'll never be the number one guy on the team. And pushes for a trade to the Nets, and he should have just stayed with Steph. It was one of those everyone was worse off by the trades. But you know, I think we remember he gets he goes to the Knicks. Things get super weird in a bunch of different ways. Finally ends up on that weird 09 Celtics team the where KG wasn't playing and they, he was supposed to be the missing piece scoring Yeah, people the were bench. really excited about that. I was not. I was not excited. You weren't excited about that? Was Everybody gets way too excited about buyouts. I just feel like uh, point guards especially, they hit a point and there's no coming back. Where... It's almost like running backs with Frank Gore accepted where when they go from level one to level two or level three, wherever they're just, there's no rallying back. All right. You're up 10 Indiana dude, an hour and a half in. I know we're going to zoom through this. (laughs) This is uh, I could do a lot of different things here. There's one name out there that was productive. Just do it. So it's the right pick. Uh, yeah, I, I still. It's the right pick. Second best player in a team that almost made the finals. I got to take Tuan over Sharif Abdul-Rahim. You have to. It's the right pick. Now, Tuan, Tuan, Tuan is the best example. Go ahead. You, why don't you take the floor here for a little bit and I'll plug in in any holes. No, we, we don't need to do, we don't need to do 10 minutes on Anto Walker, but he made multiple all-star teams. It was second best guy on a team that almost made the finals. Like he, right. Sharif, Sharif never had one memorable basketball moment. Tuan is the second best player on a team that made the Eastern Conference finals. Oh, one. Right. No, no, I understand. But, um, I really feel like if we're going to knock, I mean, God, think how bad the East really was. For, for that stuff to happen for them. Cause they it's were, terrible. were they, we at one point we're thinking they're going to play in the NBA finals. Like we're like, they're going to beat the nets. Um, they took a two, one lead in that series. They took a two, one lead. That's right. They yeah. blow game four. They lose game five and then nets come in and finish them off in game six. But the blowing game four was, you know, I think they could have won if they didn't blow that game. There's a version of Tuan. And I have to draft the version that we saw over 12 years, but there's a version of Tuan that that could have been his skill set was so high but Patino immediately hated him but then Patino was kind of like play defense and you guys can take all the bad threes you want his shot consciousness 
uh, consciousness was one of the worst of any player I've ever seen in my entire life. Except for his size, he could handle, he could pass, he could do all these things. But it just, it was like it was just a little off. It was off just a little for it to actually be kind of tough to watch for really long stretches. And it wasn't a shock. You know, here's Ainge before he's the GM of the Celtics trashing his game on TNT broadcast. And the first thing he does when he gets the gig is gets Twan out of there. But I have a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for Twan. Me but too. I'm also fully willing to admit that it was really gross for long stretches. I I likened it to a little kid, like the youngest brother in a big family who just nobody's paying attention to. Like the bonus Jonas? Yeah, like the, the fifth kid in the Sullivans in Melrose. And the youngest kid and the other kids and one's in jail and one's the football quarterback. And then there's that fifth kid. Nobody knows wherever is. And he just develops a bunch of bad habits. Twan was just unchecked for the first five years of his NBA career, basically, and was in bad situations and developed some bad habits. But the thing that killed him was he lost his confidence with free throw shooting in 02 and 03. And once that happened, he stopped going to the line. He stopped driving to the basket and he just became this jump shooter. And he was never like really a good shooter. What he was really good at was around the rim stuff and his passing. And he had all these different tools. But once he lost his free throw shooting confidence, it, it was a little like what happened to Rondo. When Rondo just didn't want to get fouled anymore, it completely changed how he played. It's and, really weird when you notice it too. Yeah. And you usually only notice it if it's like your team and you're watching them all the time. Like I remember Pierce had this really weird stretch where he wasn't making free throws in like close late situations to the point where I went through and tracked them all and then put it together and was like, he's 80%. And he's like 63% in these spots. And I remember I asked one of our guys with the Celtics, I go, Hey, have you noticed this thing with Pierce? He goes, Oh my God. And then Pierce sort of figured it out and corrected it and he was fine again. But Tuan, Tuan would also put together these moves for his size that most guys couldn't even dream of doing. And then he just back rim it. Yeah. So I've never seen a guy break people down, get open these spin moves, back you down, hooks, both hands. He had all of this stuff. And it was like, it was like a math equation where it looked at you did it and you were like, oh, look how good this is. And you're like, yeah, okay, but that's outside the parentheses. So none of this works. He was a really tough, confident guy who knew where to go and what to do on a basketball court. And he goes to Miami in 06 and plays big minutes for them and kind of knows where to go and what to do. Wasn't afraid to take big shots. He was afraid to get fouled, obviously. He that was, was not afraid to take big shots. There's not. nothing more, Tuan, than like up to 50 seconds to go. He brings it into the front court. He jacks it because he wants to have the dagger shot. And he, yeah. missed, he missed him all the time. Yeah, he really wanted to. He, he hero ball was something that meant a lot to him. Uh, all right, four more picks left. Number eleventh pick. Who has this pick in in the actual draft? It was Golden State. Well, we'll do better than they did with that pick. <laughs> I, uh, I'm going Ogoskis here. You know he. Hung around a lot longer than he should have. It seemed like when he hurt, when his feet started to go out on him, it just seemed like his career was going to be over in four or five years. It ended up playing for a pretty long time. Where was he in this? He was 20th in the actual draft. But, um, you know, he, he hung around and he was, for his career, was 13 and 7. 
He, and you thought he was toast his third year in. He didn't play yeah. foot injury. So he missed basically his second and third season in the league, comes back at 25, and you're like, this guy's shot. And he had a nice run. Beloved teammate. So I, I think that's the right pick. Who do you have for number 12? All right. Still a lot of value out there. I know. I could do roll guy here, which is a reach. There's you one, could go in the first round. There's one famous roll guy left. Yeah. Although JYD, Junkyard Dogs, Jerome Williams out of Georgetown. Nice little run. But uh, he's still too talented. I used to argue for Sharif Abdul-Rahim because he was, he was the poster boy for his era of big numbers, empty, he sucks. His teams weren't very good. He was part of the Gasol thing that happened on trade night where Sharif went to Atlanta and then they stunk too. Do you know off the top of your head how many playoff games Sharif Abdul-Rahim played in his entire career? I do. It was one one playoff series, six total. I used to Six make, games. I used to call it the Sharif Abdul-Rahim All-Stars for guys who just put up empty calorie stats. Like Zach Levine would be the Sharif MVP this year, right? But don't I still have to take him 12th? Yeah. Yeah. Let's put up so, stats. So, and he was good. He actually was good. And maybe it's grosser now when a guard puts up empty stats than a big. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's kind of the cool inversion of, of NBA eras here is that you had the empty calorie guys that were bigger and now the empty calorie guys are all small. Well, um, to put to put his value in perspective, you have to look at a couple of trades he was in. In 2001, He's basically traded for the rights to Paul Gasol when Paul was a rookie. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's with Jamal Tinsley. And well, kind of liked. So Atlanta's like, we could take Paul Gasol, this young kid from Spain, or we could lock in a Sharif Abdul Rahim. And Prime they actually Sharif. thought that was a smarter, smarter idea. Then in 04, he got traded with Theo Ratliff for That was the Rashid deal, wasn't it? Wesley Person and Rashid Wallace. Rashid, that's the best jersey ever. The Rashid Wallace Atlanta the Atlanta Hawks jersey because he played one game. Yeah, that'll be like the Tom Brady Bucks jersey. So <laughs> you think he's only going to play one game? Thirteenth <laughs> pick. So much th- disdain. I'm so mad. I get madder every day. <laughs> I was watching Falcons Falcons Patriots Super Bowl today. I was like, how can he play for another team? This is insane. Cinema this is be the greatest win anyone's ever had. I'm taking Kerry Kittles with the 13th pick for this will be for oh Charlotte. Kerry Kittles. Good fit know, for Charlotte. Good value. Short, shorter career than it should have been. He had some health issues, but I gotta say the Celtics went against him in two straight playoff series. I was always scared when he was open. He was one of those guys that when he missed, you were surprised. And the stats don't actually back it up. His stats are okay, but it just, he's one of those guys. There was something about how he carried himself and shot the basketball that you just felt like, oh, that's going in. 30, 38% career three point shooter. He took 3.6 a game, uh, 14 point career score. Just got traded to the Clippers in 2005, and his career like basically abruptly ended. But uh, I always thought him and Kid were good together. I enjoyed that backcourt. Okay, the last pick, Dante Jones, member of Mississippi State. I love that Final Four. Oh, yeah. Um, Malik Rose well, still available. Randy Livingston, go Tigers. 
Yeah, let's talk about some of the guys that are available because we also have Derek Fisher's available, Eric Dampier. Travis Knight is available. Little Shannon Anderson. Moochie Norris, who brought Shannon back Anderson, the Afro. 10 years in out of Georgia. Yeah. Um, Lorenzen Wright. You mentioned him. Jeff McGinnis. Jeff McGinnis. Chemistry killer. Yeah, just... <laughs> I can't believe you made the joke quicker than I did as I was about to say it out loud. Priest Lauderdale, just a couple years out of Central State University, but I'm sure a lot of dudes kind of liked him when they saw him walk into a room. They're like, All So right, who are you taking? Othella Harrington, 12 years in it. You know who I always sneaky liked was Ryan Miner out of Oklahoma. Did not play oh, well. Yeah, didn't Remember make that? Uh, you got to go Derek Fisher here. You know what I'm getting? I don't want him to coach. I don't want him to be my executive, but I want him to be a guy that I trust. And for some reason extended his career another four or five years by dribbling into everybody on open layups because he could never get a fucking shot off against anybody towards the end. And the ref gave him the call every damn time down the court. So if I know I'm getting that, if I know I'm getting as soon as Fisher slows down, the refs are going to bail him out for another four or five years. Give me that guy. He played 18 seasons. He's fifth in this class in minutes. 32,719 minutes. The uh, advanced metrics do not like him, but came up big in a lot of big games. Well, that was... Uh, More points than that, Marcus Camby. That was really fun. I got to ask you before we go, this was Chris Ryan uh, brought this up in a later draft that we had already recorded. Guy that you still haven't given up on, even though he's retired. Guy, you're still having, keeping your fingers crossed. Who is the Jeff Green of this draft for you? <laughs> I think I said Ryan Miner, but he was busy. He had other stuff going on. You know yeah, who I always liked? Right. Right, right, John Wallace out of Syracuse. Because John Wallace, he's, he's a really good example of, he was going to leave after his junior year. He's a big, he's kind of like, he really is like a poor man's Derek Coleman talent and production, right? And Wallace has this great run with Syracuse. Get to the title game. And they're like, look how much this guy improved his stock. And he went 18th, which is pretty much where he was going to go after his junior year. I always thought that the John Wallace story is one of the... It wasn't even a lesson. It was specific to him. But here is this guy who comes back. Massive numbers. He was so much fun in that tournament. NBA body. Face up for a big. All these things you think. He plays at Cuse. Good time, you know, just awesome production. And he went in the exact same spot he would have gone if he'd come out a year earlier. You left out, he got game. I haven't seen that in a while. Yeah, he's in there. He got game. Him, Travis Best, and uh, and Ray Allen and Walter McCarty are all in there. Uh, my guy that I have not given up on yet, even though I probably should. Damon Bailey's not in that? No. I'm going to say that John Wallace was a really good one. You know, I almost want to say Travis Knight, but I don't really say Walter McCart. I saw Tony Delk's 53 point game. I watched it. Yeah. Live. It was the first year I had league pass. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I honestly, I watched it live. He was unstoppable. The crazy thing is he wasn't taking threes. I don't think he made a three in the game. It was all mid range and, up and unders and layups. And when the Celtics made the terrible Joe Johnson trade to get him and Rodney Rogers, 
I got to say, I, as much as I hated giving up on Joe Johnson 50 games, they had a chance to make the finals. I thought Tony Delk was going to push them to another level. I was all in. So uh, I've always enjoyed his game. He, I thought he was very Vinnie Johnson-ish. I love the Joe Johnson trade because it's the worst. And the way it's terrible. it was relayed to me was that like Tuan and Pierce were mean to him. Yeah, right, right. So, so because they were mean to him, it's like, well, let's trade him for Rodney Rogers. Not going to resign. And Delco was a nice piece of that. But my favorite Delk stuff is Ashley Judd. Apparently, she was legitimately into him, and Delk was like too shy. Tony Delk, uh, <laughs> too shy. So thanks for watching the 1996 redraft. You can check out all the redrafts on the Book of Basketball podcast and. You can check them out on YouTube as well because we'll be putting them up on there. So stay tuned for more hilarity, more strange picks, more fun stuff until then. All right, that was it for the 1996 redraft. Stay tuned because we are doing 97, 98, and 99 over the course of this week and probably two weeks after that. Again, what else are we going to do? Uh, don't forget to, to check out Feeding America Dot org And don't forget to check out WCK.org, the World Central Kitchen. You can do a lot of good out there. These are two awesome charities. Check both of them out. See you with the 97 draft here on the Book of Basketball podcast. <laughs>